Welcome to the Hearts of Flame podcast, your place for Catholic formation and spirituality. Join us here every week as we delve into the archives of Hearts of Flame Catholic Summer School, sharing lectures and talks on Catholic theology, philosophy and spirituality. Hey, welcome back. My name's Tom and I'm a member of the Hearts of Flame planning team. Hearts has now been running for 30 years. So that means it's been 30 years of formation and 30 years of the beautiful liturgy and the vocations and all the other good things that Hearts of Flame offers. But every year we run the school, we need to fundraise up to $30,000 just to keep it running. We've just started our annual fundraising campaign and if you like this podcast and what Hearts offers, then we'd really appreciate your support. You can head to heartsofflame.org.nz forward slash donate to learn more. This week on the podcast, we have the third and final lecture from Peter Holmes on the Old Testament and the Mass. Lecture one and two are available in the two episodes before this, so make sure you check those out first. Let's now hear from Peter Holmes. Starting off, what did we do here? What was the point of sacrifice? In the pagan world, we're talking about here, okay? Point of sacrifice was to appease the gods, get some sort of so, sort of stave off some kind of disaster, or to gain some kind of favour. Like uh, in the Iliad, uh, Agamemnon I think tries to gain the favour of the gods for the war, or to consolidate power. And that one in particular uh, is about if I conquer someone, I sacrifice their leaders, etc., et to my deity as a kind of a an act of consolidation of power. These were all the historic, well, they're not all, because I actually had, I had three slides and I thought that's a bit of overkill. Um, <laughs> but these are a snapshot of the different cultures and archaeological digs which we have, which are direct evidence for, of human sacrifice. Notice that up to the 15th century, um, there were still human sacrifices happening in our world. Um, as far as I'm aware, it's quite rare now. As I'm aware. Um, in mythology, the human sacrifice, especially father son sacrifice, was a power struggle. The father sacrificed the son as a kind of dominance exercise over not just that son, but over all his children. Um, and as I said, as a side issue, um, abortion was ruled out in the first century BC and AD um, by the Roman Empire because, not because they were opposed to killing babies, they were quite happy with that, they were opposed to mother's choosing whether the babies live or die, as opposed to the father's choosing, because the termination of a baby in the womb was something a mother could affect and the father had little control over. They also, by the way, outlawed contraceptions. Yes, they did exist, because of the same thing, because it confused who was the father of whom. So the, the whole who was whose father is a big deal in, the, in that culture. And so um, messing with fecundity was a big problem for uh, the, the Roman civilization. You can find a lot of these uh, things in the legal codes of the Roman time, at that Roman time. Um, so the fathers would sacrifice or perhaps at least exercise their right of sacrifice, even if they didn't go through with it, uh, over their sons. And this was very common, especially you find reference to it in the Old Testament of pagan cultures surrounding Israel and sometimes Israel joining them in sacrificing their babies to Moloch. And uh, one of the things the prophets rant about when Israel's really gone to the dogs is they're sacrificing their children to Moloch. However, this, this takes, and we looked at um, the people in the Nile, so the Egyptians throwing the babies into the Nile 
is about them sacrificing to their gods as well as destroying the Hebrews. Um, that's a conquest thing. And the irony is, of course, that their own firstborn gets taken by God and the Israelite firstborns um, survive. Abraham and Isaac is a deliberate tale told as a remedy to this idea of sacrifice. In fact, what it is is a correction because there is a correct understanding of sacrifice. But as with everything in creation, the correct understanding is in Christ. The false pagan understanding is a perversion. It's a deliberate perversion and twisting of the truth. And it's, it's notice the purpose of those sacrifices was power to obtain influence, power, dominance. Just keep that in the back of your mind. With Abraham and Isaac, it's reversed. Abraham's told to sacrifice, and yet even as Abraham walks with Isaac to the sacrifice, he says, Father. And Abraham's response is, Here I am, my son. Now, I mentioned briefly that here I am is the cry of a servant. If you, the master said, Oi, servant, they would say, Here I am, or in English we would say, At your service. Abraham reverses the role. He shouldn't be saying that to his son. His son should be saying it to him. But he demonstrates his love and complete self-giving to his son. It's completely countercultural. Here I am, my son. Now, it's the same words he uses to God. Here I am. When this... Relationship, even though it's profound, Abraham's serving Isaac, he still gives over Isaac to God, and he has these profound phrases such as, Where's the sacrifice, Dad? says Isaac. The Lord Himself will provide a sacrifice. When the servant when he tells the servants to wait, he says, We will go over there, we will worship, and we will come back. He has a profound belief that God's going to be make this all okay. The rest of the Bible refers to that act, that moment, as Abraham's basically defining act of faith. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness, says St. Paul later. How did he believe? Utter trust. We don't know anything about Abraham's emotions. There's nothing in the text that tells us about that. We just get the facts, except those words, here I am, my son, that genuine affection and self-giving service to his son. So listening with the ancient audience means that we understand they would have had the child sacrifice as a background to their world. And when they're listening to this, they're kind of going, oh, well, there's another deity doing that thing, except that it gets reversed. There's a twist to the tail, and suddenly God's saying, you're not to lay a hand on him, not to lay a hand on him. Now, that is the absolute reversal of the paterfamilia. Not to lay a hand on him. The part of him he can do whatever the heck he likes with him. In fact, it's almost required of him to you know, smack him around a little bit at least to show him who's boss. Whereas the, the godly way is not to lay a hand on him, not to touch him. Uh, in the next series I'm doing on masculinity, you will hear this more fully, but in the Hebrew scriptures, a father's role is very different to any other pagan culture or even modern culture. A father's role is... There is discipline involved, but his role is not dominance, but education. And discipline only takes its place within the context of making the child great. Uh, to, to raise a child literally means to great them, not, not with a greater, but to, <laughs> to make them great, to big them. 
not just um, physically, but morally. And to make them great, they need to be able to make their own calls. So a father is truly proud, not when their son does exactly what he told them to, but when the son independently seeks God's will. Perhaps not even the way the father would like it to happen, but independently seeks from their own heart God's will. The service of the father to the son here is the profound change. It's the, it's the subtle reversal of the entire structure. And the substitution sacrifice is important there too. So we had the irony in Egypt. Um, God allows the substitutionary sacrifice. This is important. The sacrifice is available to all and the penalty applies to all. If an Israelite said, no, I'm not doing the Passover sacrifice, the angel of death would have taken them. If an Egyptian had have said, gosh, this God seems to be the right one to be with, and gone with the Passover sacrifice, they would have been considered to be part of the the ritual community of the Jews and therefore part of the salvation that that brings. The Jewish community is defined part... I mean, we think of it in terms of genetics, but most of the time they do have some distinction of people who come into the faith, but once you're practising their their rituals and once you're involved in their faith, you're actually part of them and you receive the, the benefits of those things. There's all the usual prejudices in the drone communities. Specifically, we said, what do all these things mean? Why, why are all these things important? Correct. Correct liturgy is important. Why? Because liturgical Nazis are hard to negotiate with. <laughs> Have you heard that joke? What's the difference between a, a, a liturgist and a terrorist? You can negotiate with a terrorist. Um, <laughs> um, Mm. I'm not sure what kinds of liturgists they were talking about. <laughs> um, so why, why would we need the correct one? Surely, you know, it's just in our intent, isn't it? I'm playing devil's advocate a little here. <laughs> so let me play devil's advocate for it, and you can tell me why. Why does it matter? I'm a reasonably... Um, my, my voice is okay. I'm a confident speaker. Why can't I just get up and do the Mass? I know the words. The priest has been sanctified and set aside for God because in his role the blessing and everything else convicted through his words releases an action. Okay, so what you're saying is the words themselves release something. Uh, They enact something, in fact. They do something. Liturgy does what it says. Well, I can say words. You don't know words. You haven't been uh, at the laying on hands. Right. I haven't... Okay, well... Let's say today one of the priests gets a cold and really struggling to chant. Well, I could step in, surely. No. You could just lay hands on me briefly. And yes, why can't you just do me for today and then someone else could have a go tomorrow? You taking over and doing what you want, but it has to be what the other person, which is God, wants. Yes, yes, we're getting there. But why is it that we can't just temporarily ordain someone and bring someone else in later? And what is it about a priest that's different to you and I? When I say that, I've obviously left the priest. <laughs> They're set apart, yes. Yes, there's more. Vocation means calling, but what does that mean? What will we mean by something has happened to them? Someone mentioned it. The laying on of hands happened to them. They have been ontologically changed. When God sets something or someone aside, it's not just, oh, okay, we should leave that alone because that's God's now. It's changed, its purpose has changed. We're def- even as human beings, we're defined by a purpose, but its purpose has changed. So a priest's purpose and capacity, they have a capacity that I don't have. I could say all the words in the world, 
and it's not going to do what a priest can do. In particular, certain specific things that God has put words in their mouth and said, here, you have the power, you have the keys, you have um, the authority to do certain things. So the appointed place, the appointed, and the place is important here, where as soon as they go somewhere else, not good. We get a very small snapshot, not as serious as this, in let's say you wanted to get married, and there's a church just there, and you say to the priest, I like the tennis courts. What's the priest likely to say to you? Let's assume he's a Catholic priest. No. What's he going to say? There's a perfectly good church. Well, if that were a church. There's <laughs> a perfectly good church there. Why, why would that be a big deal? Again, the appointed place, I mean, it's not as... It's not a, as massive a deal here as the temple in Jerusalem, but the appointed place, the church itself, is the place that God has said. And the choice to not be in the church is a choice to be outside of that kind of um, community, if you like. Appointed place, the appointed people, the appointed ritual and ceremony. Um, and again, tell me what was the difference between ritual and ceremony. So what you say and what you do in the ritual. The ongoing service of God, this is what we're going to be talking about today. Um, why is it that God's so particular about liturgy? Why is he so fussy? I mean, he's supposed to be a merciful God. Can't we just, you know, there's a, there's a Latin saying, um, some of the priests will know, Mater Ecclesia Suplat, which means Mother Church Supplies. And it's a phrase which is used almost <laughs> to mean... If you tried your hardest and you stumbled and accidentally said, you know, the Holy Goat instead of the Holy Ghost or something, and it was a genuine accident and you were trying to say the right thing, the, the, the saying is, it's a legitimate theology, that Mother Church supplies. If you were trying to do what the church has said and it's just been a, an honest kind of fumble or something, it's fine. <laughs> it's, not, it's not a big deal. It, there's some exceptions. But... Um, but it's used so casually these days. You know, oh, you know. We'll just, we'll just kind of sing this Bob Dylan song and it'll be fine. And um, <laughs> Mother Church supplies. No. <laughs> Not that much. But um, why is God so particular? I mean, if we have a merciful God, why is he so particular about liturgy? Doesn't it seem to contradict the idea of mercy? I'm playing the devil's advocate again. Think about how does God bring mercy to us? Where are the places you can absolutely find mercy, guaranteed, 100%, every single time? Yes, and pretty much all of the sacraments, right? Mm -hmm. And all of them are affected through liturgy. Liturgy brings the sacramental grace to us. You mess with the liturgy, you're messing with the grace. The reason why God is so particular about liturgy is because that's the way he is gracious to us. If I care about your health and your well-being, then I care about the way I prepare your food and give it to you. I don't just you know, put it all in a slosh heap, get a bit off the fertilizer pile and throw it all in and then throw it at your face. <laughs> I take care in my preparation and I present it to you so it's nourishing, so that it's got the right elements to it, and I follow the recipe. God cares so much about liturgy because he cares about you and he wants you to get the full nourishment, the full uh, effect of grace. Um, Again, what, what we sing doesn't 
affect the validity of the mass, but it certainly helps us appreciate what's going on in the mass. It'd be nice if the, the music and the, and the liturgy itself reflected precisely the majestic nature of what's going on. Okay. Yep. Yes. So what, what happened? Like in Ireland, this actually happened when they, they had to secretly say masses. There's something the priests still carried, though. What was that? More than that? They carried an altar stone. Basically, the smallest portable church you've ever seen. <laughs> Run and hide under a bush, stick the altar stone down, and we still say, on the altar. And the altar has in it, you know, each altar has in it a relic, and it's, and it's consecrated. Now, even if you're in the secretive, you know, super secret society where you can't be seen publicly saying mass, they're still carrying the, the, you know, the essentials of consecrated space, if you like, sacred space. And I hate using that phrase because it's been misused so often. But consecrated space. Now, in practice, it's not. We can still say mass wherever wherever people are gathered, and we have the right, correct elements. But setting aside space for God is a, is part of God serving us. We are human beings. We need space. We're physical. The, the, the ritual is actually physical for our benefit. Um, Protestants often joked about Catholics, and they still do, um, about the Mass. They call it um, Catholic aerobics. <laughs> now, what do you think about it? You walk into church, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, okay, yep, kneeling now, and then we're getting back up again. And, we, and, then we're <laughs> and In Protestant church, you literally sat there, and you stood up for the hymns, and you sat down again. Um, it's not the physicality of the Catholic faith is big. You touch, you feel, you cross yourself, you've got water, you've got, um, you receive, you taste. It's, it's for you and the means by which God is um, giving you grace is physical. It's a physical element to the thing. Oh, I forgot to start my timer. I have to keep watching it. So the worship is not owned by the worshippers, but it belongs to God. False worship, the problem with it is that it denies who we are and who God is. Um, uh, I was talking to someone last night and um, they were talking about theology of uh, worship, which was basically, okay, I'm going to get myself in trouble here. Some traditions of Christianity fall a little bit too far into the individualism of the modern age. And a lot of their so-called praise songs are about me. I feel this and I, my God, and I'm the one that's interested here and I feel great about that. And it's more me-ology than theology. (laughs) Um, Worship puts God where he's supposed to be. Not that we can put him anywhere, but it, it... clearly puts in our perception where God's supposed to be and where we're supposed to be. Um, Before you get too down on yourself about where we're supposed to be, the Kyrie is the starting point, the the Lord have mercy, but before we've walked in, we've already stepped up a plane. What's the first thing you do when you walk into the church? We touch something. The holy water and make the sign of the cross. What is that? What's that about? Mind of being indulgent, 
that's possibly the church. Indulgence, by the way, of the church is to weigh, a way the church, it's more complicated than this, but a simplified version is the church sets indulgences to tell us what's good for our soul. So if the church says this is an indulgence, what they're trying to say is do this, it's good for you. And also we attach graces <laughs> additionally by the... Is, um, is it just how the, the how Catholic Church do the purification? Like the Jews so it, it, it's in the place of the purification rites and therefore the font needs to be, well, if not the font, the um, holy water, it has to be by the doors because it's your entry to the church. Why at the entry? The purification rites and you're supposed to purify before you enter. Yeah. But there's something more than that. This is the house of the king of the universe. This is the Lord of Lords and King of Kings. Uh, a guy called H.G. Wells, who wrote some cool books, wasn't a Catholic, but he said, if you Catholics actually believe what you say you do about the Eucharist, you would enter the church on your knees and you'd never get up. So how, how is it that we can casually walk in? Because what we're doing is touching water. What else is water used in? Baptism. baptism. We are claiming the right, the birthright of our baptism. We are sons of God, capital S, sons of God, not male, female, sons of God with a capital S, meaning we are in Christ. We are in the Trinity, in the sun bit of the Trinity. We have the right to walk into the king's presence because we are heirs. Now, we're hum we should be humble about that, but that's not, that's not a small thing. The purification right of the temple is now even more amazing. We're not just pure enough to come into God's presence. We are heirs we come in as the sun. We walk into God's presence, purified. Now, false worship is related to mistreatment of the poor in the scriptures, constantly in the Old Testament. The prophets are going on about widows and orphans and false worship. In fact, it's so prevalent in Hebrew scriptures that when they found an ancient text from the 10th century BC on the outskirts of King David's kingdom, on one of the outposts, they found a little clay tablet that had been uh, written in Hebrew, actually in Proto-Phoenician script, but it was Hebrew writing, and it said something about the king cares for widows and orphans, and it's not from any part of scripture that we know of, but scholars, even the most atheistic scholars, immediately said this is Hebrew because no other culture gives a crap about widows and orphans. Nobody cares about the weak or the vulnerable. Nobody. It's absolutely unique and in pretty much in the world. And even now, you get people from Nietzsche all the way through saying, these Christians, why do they care about the weak? Let them fall, let them die. Um, and false worship defiles the land. So here we go. We went through that. I'm not going to do that. That's the temple. The purification happened at the entrance, um, etc., etc. We went through the offerings. Now, which parts of the mass do these represent again? The penitential rite. The presence of God, the holy presence of God, when you sing the holy holies, the, the choir goes nuts. Remember, that's a liturgical term. Um, the grain offering is, is the, the offering to um, the priest, to sustain the priest, and peace offering that we eat. So that's the part that we eat and we receive the benefits of a sacrifice in the eating of it. But also, by the way, you're eating with. In the, in the ancient Eastern culture, if you ate with someone... Or even if you just took a pinch of salt with them, if you take salt with them, they were your family. And for the next day or so, depending on where you were, it was a day or two days perhaps, they were your family and you were responsible for their welfare. If anything happened to them, it was your fault. 
because you had to protect them, you had to feed them, you had to clothe them. And so if you took food with someone, they become yours. And when God welcomes us into his presence and we feast with him, he's constantly remaking us his family and taking responsibility for us. Now, he obviously always does, but that's uh, what's happening constantly in this renewal. So you've seen this before, and this is going to form the basis of what we talk about now. What's the word in the middle? Long, which we translate as peace, and usually we mean no conflict. But all of these parts of human flourishing come from this understanding of shalom. I'm quite happy to email this to anyone who wants it. All of this comes from that understanding of peace, because peace is actually about the full human flourishing. So peace includes your good relationships, which is family, children, great-grandchildren, bouncing on your knee, um, many sons standing with you at the city gates, many daughters <laughs> uh, from which you have many grandchildren, but also what other people say of you, your good name, your respect that you have for your integrity, not fear, but respect. Your skill, your freedom, which expresses itself in skill, both artistic and work, so impact on the land, your art, your music, your contemplation, and particularly your worship of God, true worship of God. And that, again, is part of relationships. The land itself is coupled with justice, fruitfulness, and no conflict, hopefully. But the land itself, a man would ask for land for his family, for protection, for sustenance, because that's his business, and also a place to live. If i am got all these things and you don't have one of them, there is no peace. Because if you can be treated unjustly or slandered, then I can. And that means my peace is shattered because my peace is your peace. Hence, when the Mass, when we say the peace of the Lord be with you and we say with your spirit, we're binding ourselves to this ideal for everyone. And of course, because we're in the Catholic Mass, it's not just us in that room, it's also the world. But in particular, we're saying, I'm committed to this. I'm in. So, the royal priesthood. What does this part mean? God calls Israel a royal priesthood and a holy nation. And then uh, in Peter, in, in the New Testament, he also says of us that we're a royal priesthood and a holy nation. You've heard that we're all priests, like the priesthood of all believers. It's true. We need to be careful about how we talk about it. Everyone in Israel was part of a royal priesthood. What do priests do in the general sense? Minister to people? Yeah, not so much minister to people, but there's, a, there's another part to that jigsaw. They can, they offer sacrifice, or in more general sense, they intercede between God and man and bring God back to man. So they're kind of a go-between. So in what sense are the people of Israel, as a whole people, royal priesthood? They intercede for the world. So they pray for the whole world. They have special access to God. So they pray to the world. The most powerful and wonderful, awesome thing you can do for anybody else is bring your biggest, most powerful um, associate, <laughs> that's probably the wrong word, God into the equation. We often say, oh, well, all we can do is pray. 
No, no, that should be the first thing because it's the most valuable thing you can do. It's the most awesome power you have is to bring God into the equation. God's already there, but our prayers are powerful and they are our first responsibility as priests in the sense of general priesthood. Also sacrifice, which we do in the Mass. We, we offer the sacrifice uh, as laymen. There's a small, you know, you make your intention in the Mass, offering it up for a particular thing. We're to bring the, the concerns, the hurts, the, the um, joys of the world to God in that sense. And also priests are called to a higher life. Just as in the Catholic Church, individual priests are held accountable for their, their holiness and for their, their example, we, as priests of God in the world, are also held accountable for that. People see what we do, and our actions speak louder than words. And a holy nation, that means a nation set aside by God. Now, what have we said about holiness all along? If something's set aside, then it has a new purpose, and everything is geared to that purpose. And one of the two ways you can sin against holiness, you either misuse it, or you don't use it. <laughs> okay? And if God set us aside for holiness, so he set us aside to be holy for his purpose, to be a royal priesthood, what are the things we could do? Either just do something else, something bad, or not do what we're called to do. To pray, to intercede, to do God's work in the world. So our, they're both our right, peace and justice are both our right and a responsibility. Um, and the responsibility of everyone who, every one of God's gifts. So if God gives us wealth, land, authority, fame, uh, family, privilege, all of these are at his service for the peace of God and all of those around us. There's nothing wrong with owning stuff, provided it is at God's service, constantly. And if it's ever just about us, that's the problem with ownership. In fact, a good, humble man or woman with lots would be a fantastic thing in God's sight because that means there's lots of stuff that can be used for God's glory. But, um, yeah, the problem is when we hoard it. Okay, so we've gone through that. We've, this is the bit. How can we, what can we learn about this? And I've tried to stay with my uh, alliterations here, the L's. So one of the problems of modern times is loopy liturgies. And it's not new uh, because in the ancient world, the prophets spent most of their time talking about these loopy liturgies. And what were they trying to do? Again, very modern problems. They were trying to do, what's syncretism? When they try and syncretize uh, a local kind of practice or religion with the true worship of God. Uh, Easter and Christmas trees? No, not at all. No, because Christians can baptize something and say, no, no, it's ours now. <laughs> It depends. Give me, let me give you an example. When in the missionaries went to Papua New Guinea, um, the first generation of Papua New Guineans, uh, they had lots of drums and they were very good at the drums. And they, I can only talk from the Lutheran minister's um, perspective here, but the Lutherans said, bring the drums into worship. And they said, no, because the association with our pagan worship is so strong that we, we need to have a clean break from that. And then after a couple of generations, they said, oh, well, bring them in now. And that was fine because they're just drums now. The association, if you like, is distant. So it's a judgment call in many cases. Yep. But if, if a symbol, like Christians take symbols like eggs 
and go, oh, new life, look, resurrection, done. Possibly not chocolate eggs. Um, <laughs> although, I mean, I'm very cynical about um, uh, false symbols at Christmas. Um, don't get me started on Santa. Um, syncretism is where we mostly, I and mean, in Australia it takes place, and I can say this because I'm it's probably going to go back to Australia and I get in trouble, but some places will have smoking ceremonies in before a mass as part of a ritual. Now, smoking ceremonies are quite clearly an Aboriginal, Australian, Indigenous uh, spiritual ritual. Now, okay, that's part of their culture. It's something I respect, but it shouldn't be in the mess because that's a syncretistic act. Um, but we have Aboriginal artwork, which you know, we have Aboriginal um, paintings of the Madonna. Great. That's wonderful. Uh, populism is another one. We try and do things that are popular. I mentioned the Bob Dylan songs in the, in the mass. Um, simplification is another one where people think it's too complicated. I don't know if you've seen the old rite. Um, when you compare it to the new rite, Latin is very precise and concise. And English, if you see a Latin sort of paragraph and an English paragraph, the English paragraph is almost always a lot longer. But when you look at the old rite, they'll have a big paragraph and there's about three lines in English. And when you can read Latin, it says, Almighty and everlasting God, majestic in your... I don't know, I can't remember the things. And then you get to English, it says, God. <laughs> we've, we've lost some of that. That's not your problem. But I'm just saying, when people try to dumb it down, God is not dumbed down. God is majestic. There are no superlatives that are too big for God. There's, there's nothing that's um, too grandiose or over the top than God. This one is even more important, lying about love. Lots of things get excused as being loving. We have to ask the question, what actually is love? So, can you tell me, what's love? Agape is one Greek word which helps us to understand part of love, yes? Sorry, you know there's four Greek words for love and all of them are God's. All of them are gods. Um, this is one of the... Oh, I've heard this homily so many times when people separate and go, Eros, no bad, bad, bad love, bad. And, oh, oh, sorry. Um, <laughs> um, and then philia, well, that's okay. You're allowed to have friends. And agape, no, that's God's love. Well, there's actually another one, storge, which is even um, also a, a godly love. Love, all those things are good, in themselves. They're all bad in their own way when they're perverted. So eros is the most easily perverted because it's sensual. So er erotic love just in its purest form is just appreciation of the physical or the, the aesthetic. Um, technically speaking, my love for a sunset is a sensual kind of love. We don't tend to think of eros that way, <laughs> but it is in fact a sensual kind of love, which is a great thing. And I can look at a um, uh, the statue of Michelangelo's statue of David and my appreciation for the beauty of the form of the man is an erotic appreciation. Now, it's not in the modern sense because we've perverted the word, but it, it's a genuinely beautiful, okay, wow, human body is an amazing thing. If only I look like that, but anyway. <laughs> but um, love is not these sensations. They're not my, um, my reaction to things. Love in the scriptures is is never about how I feel about someone. 
Love is always measured by what we do for someone. And here's how you measure love. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not, you know, not take the lamb of the Lord your God in vain. You should remember, um, hang on, this one. Anyway, you, you get the point. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness. John's gospel and the John's letters are constantly saying this. If you love, keep the commandments. This is how you love. Keep the commandments. If you say you love me and don't keep my commandments, you're lying. This is love. Keep the commandments. What does he mean? The commandments are God's dummy's guide to love. It's sometimes difficult to understand what love is, but here's a, a dummy's guide, says God. If I want to love you, sorry, what was your name? Maria. Maria. If I want to love you, I probably won't kill you. Is that, is that a good start? <laughs> Excellent start. Now, we say that and we're laughing, but right now in parliaments, they're going, oh, is it always loving to not kill someone? Couldn't we just kill someone? Maybe it's more loving to kill someone. Do you see what I'm saying? It gets, it gets on the edges of things. You get really, and or in the womb. Oh, it's not loving to bring the child into the, the world. It's going to be a hard life for them. Yeah, a lot of us have hard lives. It's still better than no life. God's just said, no, these are things that, where there's no exception. Life is to be served. And the flip side of the commandments is always the good which it's protecting. It's not just don't kill. Because I could come here, please forgive me, I could come here with a mallet and beat my friend here to a, nearly to death and she gets taken off by ambulance and survives. And I could go, but I didn't kill her so I haven't broken any commandments. Do you see the, the weirdness of that? Christ, of course, said, as soon as I picked up the mallet and thought about it, I've already taken the step against that good. Because the good that's being protected here is your life. And your life and your health and everything related to it is sacred. And therefore, the commandment's teaching us not just don't kill, but life is sacred. Do not commit adultery is not just, okay, as one school kid said to me, so I can sleep with people just as long as they're not married. <laughs> no, it means your sexuality is an essential element of you and it is sacred. Your sexual nature is sacrosanct. It's for a specific purpose. God has set it aside for something. Use it for that, not for something else. Um, you shall not bear false witness. One of the hardest ones, actually, more in our society, harder than the sexuality thing, because Santa Claus. Um, there's so many ways in which we're constantly tested in the truth. Almost every... In Australia, they had a political campaign. One of the political parties complained that the other one was telling lies, and the ombudsman, the advertising ombudsman, said, all advertising is lies. He actually said that out loud as part of a court ruling, all advertising is lies. It's true, but gosh, it's depressing. <laughs> you think about it. How many lies are in advertising? We promise people heaven, so do Coke ads. Drink this, all your friends, happiness. You've become suddenly sexy for some reason. Um, <laughs> All of these things, amazing, but they just lie to you constantly, but it works because we buy their stuff. Um, lying about love is when we say something that's against God's will is loving. And that's inconsistent as liturgy is inconsistent when we try and syncretize it with other things. 
One of the other things is lazy life. What does the priest say at the end of Mass? There's a number of things, but what are some of the things they say? The last thing? Go in the peace of Christ sometimes, to, and sometimes they add, to love and serve. Do you have to love and serve the Lord or something like that? So the purpose is, remember, go in the peace of Christ. Now you know what that means. Go in the full flourishing of Christ. To love and to take that, yes? Yes, and what is the good news? God is love, and what does love mean? Doing good, objectively good, for others. Um, just before we get to, I know a couple of you getting stuck on the commandments thing. Commandments are so negative, aren't they? You shall not, you shall not, you shall not. Everyone goes, how can that be loving? All right, let's say this chair is sitting here and you come in the room at the start of this session and I said, you shall not sit on this chair. That's option A. Now, option B, you come into the room and I say, you shall sit on this chair. Which one of these options gives you the greatest freedom? Okay, the you shall not, because you can sit anywhere. Because God's, God is about your freedom, your genuine freedom, freedom to do what is good. And all he's ruled out is what is not good. In fact, there are a million ways you can do God's will today. There are a million ways you can serve the good that's in you and in the, those around you. And God's not interested in restricting your creativity because he created your creativity. He wants you to use your will and your passions and your skills and your creativity in love and in service of others. But all he's done is ruled out what's out. Because if he told you, you must do this, there are religions that do that. And there are versions of Christianity or attempts at Christianity which seem to do that. You must do this, otherwise you're not a Christian. Well, the church is remarkably sparse in what it tells us we must do, and they're really only the essentials. Love is freedom in the proper sense, which the only thing that is ruled out is not love, which is to destroy, to, to attack the goods that God has given us. Um, the other thing is liturgy is not local. I've seen this so many times in Australia. I'm sure you guys are immune from it, but in Australia they always want to make Australian liturgies or even Victorian liturgies or New South Wales liturgies. The liturgy is not local. Up until very recently, it was one language throughout the, through most of the Western world. But it's universal, and that means not just around the world now, it means through time. We are, I hope you're seeing this, we're saying the same liturgy, following the same pattern that God set in place in Sinai and is still going throughout the world and will hopefully still be going long after us. So this piece, sorry, hang on. This piece that we bring, where are we? Uh, yeah, right at the end, I wanted to, I wanted to finish with this. Can't slide is our mission which comes out of the Mass. When you have received the peace of God, which passes all understanding, and he's empowered us and given us those gifts, firstly of forgiveness, life and salvation, our responsibility is to bring this peace to the world. Just the same as it is our responsibility once we actually Get anything. If we've got wealth, it's our responsibility to use it. But what you've got is salvation. You've got peace with God. That should be shared. 
Now, what does that look like? It looks like this. What is God's will for the poor? We've heard it so many times, even this morning in morning prayer. What is God's will for the poor? Firstly, God listens to the poor. And then God and godly people help the poor. What is God's will for the lonely? God hears the cry of the alone and brings them, hopefully through his people, but certainly him, um, comfort. What's God's will for the comfortable? That's an interesting one. Well, what about the comfortable? I'm pretty comfortable, especially in the Western world. Yes. In what way, though? Not just to make you feel icky, because to make me grow, to challenge me, to be on my comfort zone, to actually... There's an old saying that says the scriptures are designed to comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comfortable. <laughs> and we are more likely in this culture of being comfortable than we are afflicted, although we've got our own problems. There is a... In our culture, I don't know about here, but in Australian culture, it's less likely for someone to be physically poor than it is for them to be emotionally and Friend, poor in terms of friendships, any kind of meaning in life, any kind of purpose. Um, lots of people hang out with other people. Lots of people have lots of Facebook friends and have no genuine friends. They have no one who actually listens to them, who gives a crap about their family life. You can't tell someone if you've been from a broken family because most people around the place have, have that, heard that story and they're bored with it. Nobody listens anymore. If you get good at listening, you won't have to go evangelising because they'll be beating down your door and you'll be having to schedule time for yourself just to not be listening to somebody. If you get good at making friends uh, by helping them, doing good for them, no one's going to protest this stuff. No one's going to say, no, I, I've had enough of your wholesomeness and, <laughs> and peace. They might if you tell them about it all the time, but if you do it. This is really what God's perfect plan for us is. This is what it would like if his kingdom had come. Now, one of the heresies that I believe as, a, as an evangelical Protestant was that God's kingdom was only for the next world. But what do we pray in the Lord's Prayer? Thy kingdom come... Thy will be done. Now, careful what you say that. Thy will be done. What's God's will? That all of this, our full humanity, including proper relationship with God, come to everyone. Thy will be done where? On earth. How? How is it on earth? Imperfectly? No. As it is in heaven. How is God's will done in heaven? Perfectly. Wow. How can we even start? What's wrong? What's wrong with the picture? What are you thinking at this point? How, how can we even start with this? How can we do God's will perfectly on earth? What needs to happen before we can get to perfectly God's will? Yes, but why? Why? Not just aesthetics. There's, you're absolutely right, but why does there need to be good liturgy? Yes, so for starters, the people who are trying to do God's will need to be constantly renewed by forgiveness and grace and purification so that we are capable of being royal priesthood, a holy nation. Secondly, what do all the other people need before they can even start to look at this kind of picture? 
Yes, more, more, sorry. What's stopping them from this? What's destroying this picture? Yes, there's one word for it, really. Three words. Sin. Who's quacking? <laughs> Thank you. Ten minutes, okay. I have ten minutes, don't I? Yes, good. Thank you for that. <laughs> the quack spreads. <laughs> This picture is only destroyed by sin. And that's, by the way, what the Ten Commandments is about, protecting God's glorious plan for humanity, the goodness of it. Now, mostly people hear the negatives, so maybe it's time for us to start convincing them of the positives. St. Augustine says nobody wakes up, well, very few people wake up and go, what evil can I do today? (laughs) Almost everyone, every day, chooses what they think is the best option for them. And the way we can change that decision is convince them that there's a better option. Most people would like this, but they don't believe it's possible because they haven't seen it in reality anywhere. One of the most powerful witnesses you can do is walk out of mass and try, with the grace of God, to bring this, obviously, into life, to simply live in the peace of God. And if we're living that way, most people will say, I want some of what you're having, whatever that is. It'll become more and more obvious as the world begins to collapse around us. Just as lots of people are becoming Catholic from other pseudo-Christian traditions as the world of their Christian traditions are collapsing morally and collapsing in terms of structures and any kind of difference to the world. The key to this whole thing, though, is God's mercy, which is why the liturgies and the worship of God begins there. What's the first part of the sacrifices? Sin offering, guilt offering. What's the next part? To bring the people into God's presence. The next part, to feed them, to sustain them, to bring them into God's family and protection. All of this is in the Mass, in that tiny little half an hour, sometimes daily Mass, where we get all of those goods packed in. Um, so no more complaining about long liturgies. <laughs> See, again, I mean, this is this... I have to say, this is an occasion for sin for me. Um, and when I go to an awful liturgy, it's so bad for me that my children all look at me when something happens. Um, um, Oh, okay, I'll share this. Partially, this is not just self-indulgence. This is actually the reality we face. So once we come back from this quite high spiritual experience here, you go back to your ordinary liturgies. My local mass, when we don't go there regularly, um, we go to another parish where they sing Gregorian all the time. That's lovely. But my local mass, they, it's quite a thing that they've never uttered a heresy as far as I'm aware. Um, that's the first local mass I've ever had that I can reliably say that about in Sydney. Um, so they say a valid mass hooray Um, that's that's all of this God gives these gifts in spite of the dressing when the priest says all the children stand on the pews we'd like to applaud you and my children look at me and go please don't make us do that (laughs) and I growl at the and usually we're the only children we have the only children in the church so he comes to our pew and stands there purposefully and I practice my best scowl, go away. Um, 
and um, they have you know a ten, a ten minute passing of the piece and all that sort of thing. I find that particularly gr uh, it grinds on my soul, <laughs> and I have to confess myself afterwards. Now, I'm confessing it to you publicly here because I think that's actually um, the devil's work. God is still present. I think that the devil will use any means possible to rob you of the grace of God. Uh, I just, I, I hate poor, uh, poor expressions of liturgy and I, I find it a real struggle when a priest decides to make it his own show. So the most extreme version of this I saw was a, a priest in another country, unnamed, who got one of those hoverboards, you know, the things, and he, he went around the, the church singing karaoke as he did it. Um, now, now, that's a very extreme version, and I'm using it to say, okay, he still said a valid mass, hopefully not on the hoverboard by the time he was at the altar, but the point is, is that as bad as that is, there is actually a way that the, the devil distracts us from God's grace by making us too picky about the liturgy. And if I'm so worried about what this person's doing or what the priest should have said, or, oh, gee, they were off key there, then the devil's robbed me of, well, and you still receive it, in, in fact, but he's robbed me of, of that part of the relationship which I should receive. Don't let that happen because the reality is, the, the central reality is that it's a valid mass and you've just received the flesh of the perfect sacrifice, which can sustain you and lead you to all these things. Again, if it's ever in your power to gently lead people to perhaps represent some of the majestic nature of the Mass properly, then please do so. I beg you to do so. But um, don't let that sort of quibble rob you of the joy of Christ. Um, and on the other side, you can become so obsessed with a beautiful liturgy or the singing, I've seen, uh, there was an opera singer who was in our parish. He only ever visited twice a year and he sang the most glorious Christmas litanies. Uh, but it was very much about him. And he did this whole at the front and he settled down. However, lots of people were, and I reacted to him, which was bad. And other people reacted like they were, oh, he was great. Lots of applause for him. And you forget what the purpose of the Mass was. So any kind of distraction. The devil doesn't care how he distracts you. Focus on Christ. Focus on what the purpose of a sacrifice is and where it leads you. If you come out of Mass angry, that's a win for the devil. If you've received the valid Mass, walk out with the joy of Christ and say thank you for a valid Mass. <laughs> Even if that's all you can say thank you for. Um, and try and bring the peace of God to that situation. Remember that even when people mess up things like liturgy or other things, they're almost never doing it deliberately to be evil. They're doing what the best they think for that situation. And it's not usually their fault that they've been miseducated or you know, mis misinformed or that they've, for some reason, come to that conclusion. We can gently, gently nudge them in the right direction. But the key thing with this knowledge is applying it to yourself and focusing on the grace of the sacrifice that's there. All the graces of the Old Testament, the Passover, the, that Christ has substituted. I should be the one to die for my sins. Christ has died. I shouldn't, I'd have no wor worthiness to walk into his temple, and yet the, uh, the baptismal waters have purified me and claimed me as God's son. I come in as an heir, 
and I eat at the table of the king. I walk out with the king's sacrifice inside me, physically restoring me and sending me out to do peace. There's nothing more he can give me that's more powerful to bring about that grace and peace. Um, I'll leave you with that. Thank you. Thank you. From all of us, not to blame. Thank you very much. Thank you. You should, however, um, treasure, greatly treasure and respect what you have as this this conference. This is that what it's called—a conference, summer school. Summer school. Um, I've been bragging about. I came here last year, and I've been bragging about this to Australians ever since. Um, we have summer schools; they're just not as good um, in terms of the fine liturgy the fine people, and I have to say the standard of engagement. Um, I can, I've had to step up my presentations because you guys are already thinking at a level that's um, already more advanced. Even before you, you all think, oh, I've never heard this before. I'm having to ratchet it up because most Aussie audiences aren't up to this speed. So well done. And also treasure this, this, this community because this is not a small thing. And even the people you go back and are half engagement, that's not a small thing. And in this world, it's a miracle that any of us have a faith anymore. Um, praise God for that. And every one of you can be a massive influence. And if, if the current state of the world is depressing you, think about this. Every saint that's done something amazing and heroic, it's always been in the, the most dark times. Think of the great saints. St. Saint Augustine, I always think. Wow, it'd be great to be alive when St. Augustine was around. The church really had it together then. The vandals were literally coming down and destroying the civilization. Um, some, I think that maybe in 100 years or 200 years, people look back and go, wow, that John Paul II, those guys really had it together sexually. Um, <laughs> it's the time for heroes. God bless you. That's the end of the series on the Old Testament of the Mass. I just want to give a huge thanks to Peter Holmes for his support of Hearts of Flame, and I encourage you all to check out his podcast, This Catholic Life. Before I go, I just want to remind you again that Hearts of Flame wants you to join its mission. You can learn more and make donations at heartsofflame.org.nz forward slash donate. Thanks for joining us this week. We'll be back next week with a new lecture series. We'll see you then.